This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean's been an academic founder and Googler. He has published works covering a wide range of topics from information visualization to quantum computing. Currently, Sean is head of developer relations and product marketing at Skyflow and host of the podcast Partiality Redacted, a podcast about privacy and security engineering. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sean. Glad to be here. Oh, yeah, I, maybe I should have said welcome back because you've actually you've been on several times in the past at uh, in, in in different you know points or phases of your career. You know, you came on when you were working at Facebook, which you know now Meta, discussing your work on PHP optimization, and then you also came on when you were chief architect at Slack, talking about the history and architecture of Slack, and now you're an investor. So this will probably be a bit different than some of those prior shows. I imagine, yeah, probably like less uh, references to cache misses and, you know, things about how big uh, the L1i cache is on modern server parts. Um, and probably more things about, you know, cap tables and uh, down rounds and preferences and things. Um, I'll say I try and make the show, you know, once a job. So this is my, th I think my third appearance, right? And I managed to cram in one per gig so far. So uh, thanks for keeping my streak going. Yeah. Well, whatever you do next, you're, you're always welcome back. So I think a, a natural place to probably start is given your background in engineering and in architect, as an architect, why, why become an investor? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think for me at least, and there's like lots of different paths into this stuff. For me at least, it was more a process of realization than conscious decision, right? So I kind of, and this will happen to you uh, if you're a technologist in uh, Silicon Valley, working at venture-backed startups over a you know, 20 solid year career, which is where I found myself. At some level, like you're gonna get to midlife and kind of have a portfolio of tech stock, um, some of which is private and some of which is public. And uh, whether you choose to think of yourself as an investor or not, the reality is that you are an investor. Even in your first job, you're investing your time, right? Uh, and you have a very limited uh, set of options for diversifying your time, unfortunately. It's kind of how full-time work uh, tends to, to break down. So. For myself, like after uh, leaving my role at Slack and, you know, right before the pandemic, my wife Pam and I had been planning to to go travel the world a little bit. She had just left her role at Stripe. Um, and of course, the pandemic came in, you know, a couple weeks into that, changing that all up for me. I was in the middle of figuring out what to do next, um, was dealing with this reality that I was an investor, whether I thought of myself as one or not. And, that, and there's a fair amount of identity crisis involved in that, by the way. Like I definitely spent the first 20 years of my career you know, trying to be the fastest gun in the West, computer programmers, computer programmer type of person. Um, but kind of accepting that uh, that was part of what I was doing and that I was more and more involved with angel investing and advising and uh, helping my friends who were forming companies and finding that really exciting, enjoying being around people like that, enjoying helping founders. Um, kind of one thing led to another there. And in terms of Pebblebet itself, um, we were a community before we were a fund. Um, so my, my partner, Pamela Vigata and I, uh, had a couple of friends together in a co-working space, basically shared some coffee and some Wi-Fi for a long time. Um, you know, invited friends of friends over, invited people who were founding things, other people who were, who were involved in investing in one way or another. And, you know, it being sort of San Francisco and, and there being computers in the room and things, some companies started getting formed. Um, and as we were trying to figure out you know, how to make this economically self-sustaining. We went through a bunch of different options. We thought about like you know, making it some kind of private club or, um, or like a co-working space or something. And 
it was 2021. So we thought about like DAOs and crypto and other kinds of innovative, you know, organizations. And little by little, I convinced myself we were just kind of crappily reinventing venture capital. Uh, and, and so uh, friends of mine who are in venture suggested maybe we should save our innovation points for, you know, the computers and the hardware and the software and the, the parts that we could add value in instead of trying to uh, innovate on the like organizational and, you know, security side of things. Um, so that was, that was kind of the genesis of us as a fund. Yeah, I think it was really interesting what you mentioned there about how you're working in tech and in a lot of ways you're always an investor, whether it's your time or also I think people who work in tech for a, a number of years if you're in you know, the Bay Area, there's also just a tremendous amount of opportunity to do some side investments, get into angel investing. And I think a lot of this kind of like community that you're talking about ends up naturally forming between you and your peers and you might be investing essentially. I have you know groups of friends that do this essentially that are just like, oh, well, like we're interested in investing. It's a way for us to kind of keep uh, a, you know a pulse on what's going on in the industry, and we have some you know money to play with. So let, let's go uh, start you know dabbling essentially with with uh, helping out other startups and so on. Right, right, right. And I will say like there was sort of in, in my mind a, a fairly uh, bright line, and I've been surprised actually how bright the line is between the angel investing frame of mind and the venture capital frame of mind, right? As an angel investor, you're basically just, um, you know, it's, it's your money, you're accountable to yourself, you're accountable to your family, um, but you can make decisions the, the way you feel like making them. You can write a bigger check into this, a smaller check into that. You can, you know, not be valuation sensitive. You can go into weird sectors that you're curious about as a, as a sort of pretext to learn more. Um, whereas in, the, in a sort of proper venture fund, and basically a venture fund, we're investing other people's money, right? We're a fiduciary. Um, we're responsible for other institutions and people's resources. You need to be a little bit more, you know, providing a financial product at some level, right? So you need to kind of do what you're going to, you know, say what you're going to do and then do what you said you'd do. Right. Yeah. Angel investing to some, in, in some ways is uh, like, it's like more uh, akin to like a, like a hobby that you're doing for fun versus uh, the, uh, if you're doing venture, then you, it's like, like a job. You now have responsibilities where you, you uh, ultimately need to make money for people. And there are like, there are awesome angel investors out there. There are people that really, that, that take this absolutely ser deadly seriously and are able to, uh, and a handful of them have, have, you know, made a fortune investing their own money. Um, and, and I don't, you know, the people who are awesome at that are awesome at it too. It's just a slightly different game. Yeah, for sure. So what makes, you know, Pebble Bed different than other firms? Yeah, I think um, the way we view ourselves as being differentiated is both myself and, and Pam Vigata have had long careers as individual contributor technologists. And we've especially been focused on bringing new computing techniques into the market. Um, and that's been true at sort of every stage of the companies we've worked with and, and worked at uh, in our previous careers. So um, why should you care? Well, um, you know, ostensibly what makes tech tech is that we're... Uh, that we're relying on, on innovative platforms and creating innovative platforms. That's sort of the thing that's dis distinctive about the SASAC class. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the underlying engine that has made it overperform over the last few decades has been that it has actually innovated and unlocked new things, new, new capabilities for human beings, right? So uh, not every company is, uh, and not even every tech company is going to be jumping over some really high hurdle technologically to succeed. Right. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. That's how it's always been. That's how it's always going to be. Some, a lot of things are just applications. That's fine. 
Um, but for the subset of companies, and there probably are only you know a couple hundred of them a year or something, but the subset of companies that really are trying to uh, jump over some new technical barrier or bring some new technique or insight or connection across domains in the market, um, we think we're going to be able to help you succeed with that. Right? We have that. There's a sort of set of patterns and ways that those efforts can get stalled um, that we think we have differentiated ability to help with. Um, and yeah, I think that, that there's a way where these things probably go in cycles a little bit, right? Like if you look back, you know, 30 years or even 50 years to sort of the birth of, of venture as a discernible class that we'd recognize, those are, you know, 50 years ago, a lot of venture investors are coming from backgrounds of semiconductor engineers you know, and having some sense about, you know, what actually is physically realizable was decisive to their ability to, to pick winners and losers. Um, and then as, as spaces mature, a lot of times they become more financialized, right? And we've seen this most recently with software as a service. I think like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was, when I started Facebook, for instance, which was uh, early 2009, um, it was not a totally settled frontier how you operate a big web service, right? Uh, there was sort of AWS, but not AWS as, you, as we really know it yet. Um, the, the places that had succeeded doing it, really Google was the only, Google and Amazon were, were the point examples of people that really succeeded doing it. There were a ton of trade secrets in there. Um, Facebook developed its own kind of, you know, iterations on those trade secrets as it turned out. Whereas I think by the time I was taking on my role as chief architect at Slack, which would have been like 2016, that was getting to be more understood, right? And, and if you were, you know, bringing a big web service to market that was closer to sort of, you know, making tasteful selections about which technologies you use and stuff, but the technologies existed. Uh, you didn't have to invent it all from scratch. To a large extent, AWS had already scaled out bigger than you were ever going to scale out, no matter how successful you were. Um, and so it was starting to get more of a settled frontier. And by the 2020s to 2022, you kind of like, at least from a venture investing standpoint, once you were sort of post-product market fit, a lot of venture capital firms had a lot of success investing from a spreadsheet, right? Just kind of being like, there are these seven numbers we need to know about you, like, you know, what your user growth is, what your CAC is, what your, you know, ARPU is and blah, blah, blah. And if we've got those seven numbers, that's kind of all we need to know about you. Um, and I think what we're in the middle of now is, is a kind of retrenchment towards those fundamentals of it really mattering what the capabilities are, it really mattering uh, which teams actually have the goods in terms of bringing those new capabilities to market, which ones understand, you know, what these new tools are capable of and not capable of. Um, and by the way, I should say probably for listeners, we're talking right now, it's February 2023. We're in the middle of, you know, what is at least so far a local maximum in a speculative mania around AI. Um, so this is, we're, you know, a couple months into ChatGPT launching. We're about six months out from stable diffusion, kind of like breaking mass consciousness. Um, so right now, a lot of that capability company formation stuff is is very focused on AI. Um I've actually never done a, a, a software engineering daily, uh, but, you know, uh, one of these episodes about it, but I did found Facebook AI research 10 years ago. Uh, myself and Yaniv Teigman and Lubomir Bordov uh, basically saw AlexNet, saw a very early deep learning uh, computer vision system, immediately thought that there was something subjectively very different about this. Uh, we were The three of us were working at Facebook at the time, and we put a demo together for Zuck, got a meeting with him, and to his credit, he, he bankrolled Facebook AI research, you know, more or less in, uh, on the spot. Um, so I'm in a kind of front row seat to some of the stuff for the last 10 years. I can't say I've been the creative mind behind a lot of it, but I've gotten to, to be in the room while a lot of interesting things were, were proposed and built. Um, so it's a very exciting time. I, I, I get goosebumps about, you know, having machines that sort of kind of think 
um, the way everybody else does. And I find it really exciting that there's no spreadsheet that captures this all right now, right? We don't really know what you do with these machines that sort of kind of think yet and what's useful about it and who captures the value yet. Yeah, so given your you know technical background um, and given this transformation that's kind of happening in the industry from you know not essentially being able to make these at least from your perspective, you don't think that you can essentially assess these types of companies using a spreadsheet, using traditional models. Would you say that essentially the traditional VC market, they just, they lack currently the, I don't know, the core competency to be able to make these kind of judgment calls on what will work from a technical perspective and what will not work? I mean, I, I don't want to sort of presume to criticize an industry that I'm new to, right? I'm still learning a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of great deep tech investors. A lot of them have technical backgrounds, but it does seem subjectively like at the margin there's room for more uh, technical expertise to be allocating uh, capital. And when I was an angel, I saw this from the direction of you know I'm supporting these people that I believe in and where I understand what they're doing very very well. And I would see these firms with you know very large piles of assets, not backing them, and instead backing you know an NFT marketplace or you know, another ultra-marginal SaaS business that's, you know, accounts receivable for the construction industry in this segment of the construction market or something like that. Uh, and I'd be frustrated by that. And I think that's true. I think there are a bunch of, like, technically uh, risky things, things that read out as technically risky to, to sort of vanilla VC that aren't actually as risky as they look. Um, as I spend more time in, in on the venture side of the table, I also see the other direction a fair amount, that there are um, frankly, some sort of canonical crazy things that get funded that shouldn't be, <laughs> you know, that, that, that are basically intellectual mistakes that I, I have made in the past um, that are not going to scale up for reasons I feel pretty competent to articulate that also get funded because, you know, for whatever reason, right, the, the founders are good at fundraising or they have a track record doing something else or what have you. Mm -hmm. So you're interested in, uh, you know, investing essentially in companies that have some technical risks or maybe a technical secret. What do you, you know, essentially what do you mean by like a technical secret and how do you go about evaluating the technical risk? Yeah. So uh, thanks for, the, for reminding me of our, our bigram technical secret. So technical secret is kind of a, a phrase I'm trying to make happen to describe Pebblebed's uh, investing edge. Uh, we're borrowing secret from, from Peter Thiel. This is a secret in his sense, which is uh, something you know about the world that is uh, not commonly known. And by technical secret, we mean that it's, you know, a secret in your, your field of STEM expertise, right? So if you're a computer scientist, it's something about your little vertical slice of computer science that isn't yet common knowledge. Um, you might know something about, you know, how to train a transformer better than other people are able to, to train transformers, to take a rip from the headlines example. Uh, a lot of times technical secrets are less, you know, the kind of thing you can write a paper about, um, Sometimes they're, they're kind of Stripe's technical secret, for instance, was just that like they had boiled the ocean of crazy, difficult, annoying and regulatorily risky things around operating payments. Um, and by concentrating that expertise, they'd like built a huge motor in their thing, for instance. Right. So I would consider that a technical secret, too. Um, I think the example of it that I return to most because enough time has passed now that, that this was an we can unambiguously kind of tell the story. Well, just when I started my career at VMware in 2000, um, you know, I can point you to the computer science citations people had that said that the x86, right, the dominant server architecture these days, uh, for most of the last two decades anyway, uh, that the x86 
couldn't be virtualized, that you can't run a virtual machine on an x86, which is like all AWS all does all day long, by the way, right? That's the, we wouldn't have a cloud computing industry or a public cloud or a private clouds for that matter if it were not true that you could virtualize the x86. VMware knew you could do it. Uh, they had a technique for doing it. If you actually go back, by the way, and like trace down the paper trail of like how computer science came to believe this false thing, the actual paper from the 70s that Popek and Goldberg wrote about virtualization criteria it came out in 1973. Uh, it, ha it had this sort of little theorem in it that said, if your architecture supports these three criteria, it can be virtualized. And it had a little construction that described how you build a VM for it. Uh, it was basically a trap and emulate VM. And the x86 didn't support those criteria. And so that would be what you know people in the 90s and later would, would cite saying, okay, you can't virtualize it according. And the citation would read Popek and Goldberg 73. Go grab Popek and Goldberg in 73 the second half of their paper is warning you about reasoning from the converse. The second half of their paper says, notice that like you can't use our paper to prove that something can't be virtualized. There might be some other technique we don't know about, right, that, that makes this trackable. Uh, they were right. The technique they didn't know about was basically just-in-time binary translation. The founders of VMware, which which I was not, by the way, I was uh, I was coming to VMware with you know as a going concern. I was like the 20th engineer, 100 employees or something like that. Um, but they knew something that the rest of the world did not know, which was that there's this technique that works wonderfully. Now, uh, that's all done and dusted because it was 20 years ago. In the, in the moment, these things are messier and harder to resolve, and it's harder to tell what's really going on. I remember most people that I demoed VMware to in the late 90s who were kind of systems geeks, like kind of, you know, operating system people. They were familiar with this idea that you can't run efficient x86 virtual machines. So if you showed them a copy of Windows 98 booting up in a, in a window, right, which is kind of VMware's bread and butter, their initial uh, response was like, this is some sort of weird, freaky hack. They did something strange that's Windows 98 specific that, you know, great, it, it lets them do this weird thing. But it's not going to unlock all the wonderful value that we know virtual machines could unlock. Um, but and, and that was kind of VMware's secret for, for several years. And it was enough of a lead that it, you know, wasn't really until hardware started supporting this almost six years later um, that other entrants could really compete with them toe to toe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, great example of a of a, a technical secret. But you know, even when it comes to, I think, like early stage investing, this is something I, I've talked about in a previous show as well. Is you don't have a lot to go on with evaluating a business of whether you, you know, invest in them or not. Like, even if they have this technical secret, there's still a long way to go from that to building like a big, big business. Right. So how do you go about like assessing the team? How do you determine whether you're dealing with essentially a players versus B players and whether they're, you know, have a high chance of success? Yeah. I mean, our, our attempts to assess this uh, break down into sort of two categories. There's the technical part and the team part. And I should say, by the way, one of the things that's the you know, biggest adjustment probably from as a computer person coming into venture capital is like, I, we might be terrible at this, right? We'll know for sure in 10 years. Um, but unlike computers, I do not get prompt feedback about whether what we are doing here works or not. So it could be that, that people you know, refer back to this podcast in 10 years as an example of what not to do. But to, to try and document our approach here, for better or for worse, um, on the technology side of things, uh, the secret all by itself isn't necessarily enough. You need to be kind of past a certain level of maturity just with the secret. Uh, and in practice, this means, you know, a, a commercially viable demo in certain ways. Um, a framework we use sometimes is the Air Force's tech readiness level, 
So the U.S. Air Force has this little one to nine scale for new technologies, and they're using they're using this basically to assess like weapon systems and sensor systems and propulsion and you know whatnot. Um, so sometimes the the scale sounds a little uh, oriented around defense applications, but you can up, squint a little and apply it in lots of technology domains. And level one is basically like there's a lab effect, right? Like there's some phenomenon, you know, at the level possibly at the level of physics um, in computing, it's like some theoretical result or something like that. Um, but there might not necessarily be, you know, much clear line of sight to, to commercial application there. We pick things up around tech level five or six. Um, so tech level five is roughly, we can put together a demonstration in commercially relevant circumstances, right? So it works like not in the lab. It works on real code. It works for real customers. Um, it works on real hardware. Uh, and level six is it works on, you know, commodity off the shelf hardware, right? That it's That it's not like, a bunch of PhDs with soldering irons and $100,000 of gear to, to pull off a demonstration of it, it really is starting to be something that you can reach out and touch and, and see how you could make something reasonably economical out of it. Um, and of course, that's, you know, everybody's trying to invest at that time. Like that's the, that's the time where everybody's trying to get in the front door. To the extent we think our backgrounds help us at all, it might just be that we're a little earlier to notice that something is at five or six. Um, than you know, perhaps our less technical uh, peers. Yeah, imagine with investing, like especially when you're coming at it with like a new angle that you, you know, it's basically a hypothesis that you think like, oh, this is like a good way to go about going about like assessing investment opportunities and it's going to lead to great ROI for you know our, our fund. The it's a slow feedback loop. You know, it could take, like you said, ten years for the bets that you're making today to actually pay off. And you're only going to get so many of bats as well. It's not like you're going to invest in, you know, 10 million companies in the next year. It's going to be a handful of companies. So how do you go about like essentially shortening that feedback loop so that you're evolving and your, you know, essentially your investment thesis and learning all the time? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And I think like there are, while it's true that sort of the ultimate, you know, returning dollars to investors thing might take as long as 10 years. Um, there are proxies for success that you can read out a little bit more quickly. Um, and those proxies for success at early stage are, are progress, right? are, are, are sort of progress towards commercial viability, their progress towards customers getting value out of it, people paying you. Um, in some cases, it's, it's just having a user base that's excited, right? Um, especially for developer tools, a lot of times you can, can read out community vigor and the seriousness with which people are applying those developer tools, um, the quality of those customers and things like that. Uh, you know, strangely, uh, competition is actually kind of positive, right? Having, doing something and then having GitHub decide they have to go directly compete with you or whatever is like, well, GitHub's kind of smart money, right? If they, if they feel like it's worth it to come after us, that means we're probably onto something valuable at least. Um, but the answer is that you, that you don't have sort of totally perfect information there. And yet, um, it's been surprising to me so far. And I should say, like, we, we did our first check in July of 22. So this is still very early for us, right? We're in our first year of trying to, to learn from feedback here. Um, there's still sort of pretty clearly some spread in outcomes, right? <laughs> there, there's still pretty clearly some folks that, that are definitely onto something and some folks that are a little bit more in the wilderness, right? They're, they're pivoting or they're still trying to figure out exactly what to do. Um, which is which is natural at the stage we're at, right? We're we're sometimes the first money in. Uh, we're mostly pre-seed or seed. A lot of the folks that we're trying to invest in are um, 
kind of got their start at our at our working space in, in the mission here in San Francisco. Um, and we've sort of seen them from, I had a W2 job and I'm kind of hanging out here to, I feel like I want to do something in this area to, you know, initially incorporating and, and taking a little bit of money on board to get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as someone who's, you know, had a long technical career, it would make sense that you are probably in a unique position to sort of judge the, you know, the technical risk and, and also the technical secret of these different comp- types of companies. But are there other skills that have been transferable from your technical career to investing? Or in what, what were things that you had to learn? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's an interesting question. I think uh, one of the, 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 my mind was opened a lot by this actually by one of our partners, Luke Byrne, who's um, a younger guy. He, he's newer to, um, you know, he, he's been uh, doing VC his entire career, but uh, has, that career has been a lot shorter than mine, candidly. And one of the things that was interesting about Luke for me is he's fascinated with developer tools, done a lot of investing in developer tools at his previous firms. Um, and I, I was partly curious, like, well, how'd you get all of this taste in developer tools? Like, how'd you get so interested in this? And it turns out he builds a fair amount of stuff. And a lot of stuff he's building is actually, you know, to do venture things, right? Is to um, do the same kinds of things that you might do uh, for, for lead gen in sales inside of a, a relatively scrappy early startup. Except instead of looking for customers, you're looking for founders or you're looking for investors or you're looking for, um, you know, whatever the, the customers for some of our portfolio companies. Um, so the kinds of things that, that folks do uh, and build uh, end up having an impact there as well. Um, so I was surprised kind of that, that there's still code to write, basically, right? Like we, uh, you know, we use off the shelf tools for a lot of things. Um, but your, your vanilla CRM is never going to be exactly what you want in terms of tracking things or you know, remembering which people the, the LP update needs to go out to and whatever. And, you know, we end up building stuff. So I think strangely, like the ability to automate, you know, knowledge work remains pretty relevant to this space. Um, and we're just four folks, right? It's myself, Pam Vigata, Luke Byrne, Tammy Sue. Um, so it's, you know, pretty lean and mean team. So we, we have to automate everything we can. Um, so that part of it is not, you know, so, so different from, from being a tech startup. And in, in a way, I think we, uh, we imagine ourselves to be a kind of tech startup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, given your sort of strong technical background, you're kind of in a unique position to maybe take a different look at some of these problems where you're like, Oh, well, like, I'm not, like I, I could write, you know, code to essentially automate that or solve that problem where in another company that were, or it's another firm where someone doesn't have that background, they're thinking like, Oh, well, I need to, you know, get someone to do all this legwork on it and it ends up with like a bunch of manual like human work where it's something you can actually automate. That's something I experienced even in working in the mark, you know, marketing space is like, I am a classically trained engineer, worked as an engineer for a long time and I can approach, you know, what is a marketing or sales problem in a completely different way than someone who hasn't had that experience. Right. And I think like, you know, like a lot of other industries actually, like there's kind of a spread among lots of firms. Like we're at one point in that continuum. Um, all of the sort of super high resource places that are managing a billion dollars or whatever, they all do all this stuff to the max, right? They have a ton, they have engineering staff and they run projects and pay for Jira the same way a software company would. Um, there's this kind of traditional version of venture capital that, that has been kind of unkindly described as like uh, being like a real estate agent or something, right? That it's a numbers game, right? That you're just trying to, to get enough shots on goal or enough bets or enough like, um, 
you know, that's sort of fundamentally a sales job. There's elements of it that are like that, I guess. Like I, I, I think it's, you'd be fooling yourself to pretend that you can reduce that all away. Um, but yeah, I think the, the kind of best in class people are, are using what's available in terms of, uh, you know, what we know about performance marketing, right? Cause it's, that stuff's all still applicable. And I guess I think that's a little bit unusual about us in terms of our space here. And there are other deep tech firms that I think try to do this uh, is just sort of some of the way that we're keeping tabs on research areas that we think are interesting or promising. Right? So things that aren't at that tech readiness level of five or six yet, um, for example, quantum, right? I think quantum computing, um, and we're not talking here about quantum sensing. Some of those things are actually past TRL five and six already. Um, but, you know, actual quantum computing, right? Like, you know, we're going to need different encryption algorithms, that kind of quantum computing. Um, that stuff, in my opinion, is not at technical readiness level five or six. And there are founders who disagree with me about this, right? That, that have an argument that, you know, the number of qubits is going up according to some sort of super Moore's law and, and you might as well just get out ahead of it now. Um, we don't think it's there yet, but it will be there yet. And we'd love, you know, at some point in the future, and we'd love to be relatively early to that. Uh, this is not a fun one thing uh, for what it's worth. It would surprise me if the next two or three years... There's a ton of investable quantum stuff, but this is something, you know, intelligent people disagree with me about, but I, I, quantum computers are still imaginary computers. They're still like all that quantum software still runs on notebooks and in people's heads pretty much. Yeah. I spoke to the chief architect for quantum computing at IBM a few months ago, who was on the show. And I think he would agree with you that it's not at, he would agree with you that it's not at, you know, a five or six today. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the, the closer you are to that, the more uh, well-calibrated your sense of that's going to be and, and it would make a ton of sense that they are. And I'm, by the way, like a place like IBM or, uh, you know, in in the case of AI, Facebook, they are going to be earlier to these spaces because they're actually pretty well set up to do fundamental research there. Uh, and they, they really should be. Um, but we don't view ourselves as bankrolling science projects. So besides quantum computing, what are some of the other technologies and trends in the market that excite you right now? Yeah, I, there's an unbelievably lukewarm take here, but, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of ignore the AI elephant in the room right now. Um, it is taking up a tremendous amount of energy and, and discussion. I think a thing that um, is underappreciated is, you know, I, I have a bunch of friends at OpenAI. I think it's an awesome organization, have a lot of respect for what they've done with ChatGPT. But if you think ChatGPT has the potential to be a billion DAU product, right, to be one of these products like Google Search or, or Facebook or, uh, you know, Gmail or one of these things that just is like part of the air we breathe as, as digital humans, there are, to the best of my knowledge, not enough flops on planet Earth to support that today, right? So and I'm going to, you know, that's, that's original research. That's a claim that's like based on spreadsheet math. That's, that's just mine and it could be wrong. Um, and that's making a bunch of assumptions that probably aren't true. They're probably more sophisticated than just, you know, a naive forward pass these days of, of the full model, but taking it at face value, that's not a situation we're used to being in, right? We're not used to being in a, a situation of real computing scarcity. Like for the last 20 years, if you had some sort of idea in computing and it was a hit, people liked it, right? People wanted to pay you for it. The idea that you needed to wait around for a bunch of hardware companies to figure something out to produce a bunch of silicon and a bunch of metal that that's you know doesn't exist yet um, has not been part of the discussion very much and part of the economics very much uh, for these things so far. So I think there's a big mental adjustment going on there. It's interesting talking to people 
uh, doing this stuff where you're talking to, you know, a couple of college kids that just dropped out to found an AI startup, which is happening all over the place right now, right? And almost right out of the gate, they have like a multi-cloud strategy, right? Almost right out of the gate. They, they have a real live strategy around like GPU economics um, that's kind of more sophisticated than a lot of, you know, Series C, Series D companies that are taking a look at their margins and their cloud spend um, because there's millions of dollars at stake, right? It affects their ability to actually execute on their dream immediately in a way that it hasn't before. So that kind of, there's a weird disequilibrium here where that's not going to last. And, and I... Um, Temperamentally, I find myself obsessed with the platform layer here a little bit, right? I come from, you know, a background that's mostly at the hardware software interface. Uh, and so I am fascinated with, with alternate hardware approaches. Different numerical representations has been a, a hot area lately. There have been various little rumbles around analog implementations that, like, I still think there's, there's something to play out there. Like, nothing's really, um, nothing has stuck so far. There are people trying photonics uh, in, that, in the analog domain and stuff. So I think there's going to be some interesting things that happen uh, as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you, I believe you, you said you wrote your first check back in July of last year. So you've been going at this a little under a year. Could we, could you talk, maybe go through, you know, one or two of your investments that you've made and talk a little bit about, you know, what was the sort of technical secret that they're taking on that, enticed you to, to make that investment? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, well, our first that first check in July was for uh, a company called Meliora Therapeutics. Uh, it was a founding team that included uh, David Lee, who I had uh, had contact with when he was at Benchling initially a long time back. But uh, Meliora Therapeutics is uh, a drug discovery company. They're looking for new cancer drugs. And the thing that they knew that uh, was at least controversial and certainly wasn't popularly appreciated uh, was due to their chief scientist, a fellow named Jason Schultzer, also a founder of the company. And Jason Schultzer is uh, an MD-PhD at Yale, and he studied, he's an oncologist, but he studies cancer drugs. And the thing that he knew was that most, many, many cancer drugs don't work the way that we think that they work, right? So he had a series of publications of the form, drug XYZ doesn't work the way it's supposed to work, molecule XYZ doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. Um, and what do I mean by supposed to work? Well... So let's talk about the, uh, the actual pipeline of drug discovery right now as it's currently being executed for sort of these precision drugs, right? So the workflow for trying to discover a blockbuster uh, cancer molecule right now goes, first, you take a bunch of exomic data, right? So you get a bunch of clinical data, um, genomics, right, proteomics, and you look for uh, a plan of attack, right? You look for, for a target, right? You look for some sort of, uh, you know, enzyme or pathway or protein that's expressed by this kind of tumor. And we use what we know about biology to kind of look at the list with the candidates there and say, oh, this thing's involved with like cell proliferation and it's massively overexpressed in a lung tumor of the second kind. It might be a target for a drug. And then we'd use what we know about, you know, it's, it's chemistry, to try and find a molecule that's going to interfere with that. And then we take those molecules and start, you know, increasing the level of, of expense and clinical investigation around them slowly. And if all goes well, it ends up with phase three clinical trials and we decide it's, it's safe and efficacious and we start using it on, on actual patients, right? That all takes years, billions and billions of dollars. Um, and the failure rate for things that enter phase three, that enter that, that uh, for cancer is 99.7%, right? So one in 300 of those molecules that we try out actually ends up in the uh, you know being the kind of thing that you can prescribe. 
what Jason sort of knew that uh, nobody else knew, or that is at least still controversial, let me put it that way, is that if you take a version of that, uh, the tumor that you're claiming to treat, and you just crisper out that target, right? It just doesn't express the thing anymore, right? So you, you found some enzyme that's, you know, supposedly key to the proliferation of this thing. You're going to make a new version of that tumor. It doesn't have that enzyme. Mice with that new version of the tumor, it proliferates just as well. It's just as effective a, a cancer as it was before. So you're wrong that, that that was this key pathway to start with. Secondly, the drug you discovered works just as well as it did before. So that drug wasn't doing what you thought it was doing. And in a vast majority of these cases, they're basically just off-target toxins, right? They're just kind of novel chemotherapeutic agents, right? They're poisons. They stop your cancer because they stop anything that would try to grow. They probably hurt your cancer a little bit more than it hurts your healthy tissues, but that's about all that's going on there. Um, and if you take a step back from this, there's no a priori reason that this approach that we're, that we're taking has to be sound, right? There's no a priori reason that um, this has to converge. And if you instead take the kind of approach that machine learning took to, say, computer vision 10 years ago or to natural language processing eight years ago and say, hey, our knowledge of this field is incomplete. We don't understand how language works. We don't understand how the visual world works. We don't understand how cancer biology works, at least not well enough to reliably engineer drugs for it. But we can make big piles of data and we can take farms of GPUs and we can throw them at those big piles of data, and we seem to be able to come up with a lot of practical solutions to problems that way. Um, why do those practical solutions work? Well, that's a different problem, and maybe we'll solve that later. Um, but it's pretty pragmatic at, at figuring stuff out end-to-end -end and producing baked solutions. So basically taking that approach to small molecule drugs. Um, and I, I have seen that approach kind of work and, and dissolve enough, um, you know, Gordian knot, uh, as a Gordian knot approach to kind of other fields where machine learning just shows up and um, is able to, to learn biology that we don't know or learn things about the visual world that we don't know yet. And in the fullest of time, by the way, eventually we go back and we reverse engineer those neural nets and do learn things about how, you know, you might do, build an information processing system that's good at doing computer vision tasks or good at doing language processing tasks. Um, but in the meantime, we get an effective solution to the problem, which is what patients want. Um, so I found that really inspiring, and, you know, it's it's very early for Meliora. Um, I think there that the insight part of it, right, we talked a little bit about there being both a kind of technology part and a team part. So I like their, their technical approach. And, and I should add, by the way, the vast majority of folks attacking machine learning, you know, saying we do ML for drug discovery, right? They're mostly applying it within one of those silos or both of those silos, or they're doing ML on finding targets, or they're doing ML on you know, finding a, a molecule that fits that target. They're not just saying like, you know, maybe maybe our mechanistic insights are not going to be sufficient. Let's just try and let the machines figure out what the right mechanisms are. Um, so I love that technical approach. And then there's a question of the team. Um, and David is, you know, to my way of thinking, brilliant, incredibly gritty, um, incredibly determined, incredibly passionate about solving this problem. And, uh, you know, and, and Jason Schultzer is, uh, you know, actually knows something about this that is is still rare to see, uh, you know, out there in the world. And it could be, by the way, that uh, to be to be clear, we also find drugs that work this way with our old workflow. That's how it happened. We do have a few of these things that that really did identify uh, key pathways and, and built silver bullet drugs that attack those pathways and are miracle cures. We hope we keep finding those too. Um, but this approach is at least like a new approach that's going to lead us to new molecules, I believe. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, 
Yeah, sorry about this. This one's like a, like, I apologize for the depth of the rabbit hole here. This one's sort of really fun for me and it's hard not to kind of, uh, not to get it over my head. And I think. No, I can tell, uh, I can tell you're, you're really excited about it. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I think for an example, one that's like probably a lot more down, uh, you know, down to earth here for, for our audience and for practitioners of software engineering. Um, we're also investors in Gitpod series A. So Gitpod is, uh, you know, a cloud-borne development environment. And the set of stuff that they have built up a bunch of expertise around is much more uh, a million lead bullets, right? So instead of there being kind of one big technical insight that makes them work, um, there are all these difficult things about trying to run the whole world's development environments. Uh, For instance, that the world's development environments are heterogeneous, right? Like different companies want different things from their development environments. They want to attach them to different databases. They want you know, different groups of people to have different experiences, they have different repos, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, a big chunk of the Gitpod experience, if people have never used Gitpod, by the way, I suggest go check it out. It's gitpod.io. Um, you know, it's a, a cloud-born hosting environment. By default, it dumps into VS Code, but it can be a Unix shell if you want it to be. Um, it can be any any popular IDE. Um, and a huge amount, at least for me, of, of what Gitpod does that's a little bit miraculous is just uh, how quick the happy path is, right? Like once you're kind of set up, um, it's strictly smoother and faster to just use this disposable environment than it is to, um, you know, have a machine somewhere that you SSH into and that occasionally skews from the way the development environment is supposed to work and yada, yada. Um and at least for me, like, you know, I've described that some of our software engineering tasks uh, in my day job at PebblePed, for me, at least like that resistance of, oh, I need to set up a development environment is always kind of this first, you know, couple hours of a task or a couple hours of a new code base or whatever. Having that just be removed has been a hugely freeing, has freed up, you know, hours and hours a week for me. Yeah. Yeah, we, um, this is actually something that uh, I did a show on back in, I think, September of last year um, with uh, Code Anywhere, kind of similar, talking about similar similar challenges of, you know, every engineer for like decades now, their you know first day at a new job is two days of vocal hosts <laughs> set up for their dev environment so that they can go and build cl- a code that is deployed on a cloud and doesn't run on a desktop. It's it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting to the point, you can see we're still doing. like I was here or whatever running in, in your new million line code base is always, uh, the first couple of days and it's always a stressful period too, right? So it's like your first few days at work and all that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's, that's happened over, you know, probably the last six months is there's been a big change in our industry from, you know, company valuations and now lots of layoffs from, you know, big tech down to startups. What advice do you have for, you know, maybe first time founders out there trying to raise capital in the market today? Oh, well, yeah, uh, and I think advice is one of those things that, I, that you should uh, always take lightly from uh, other people because you know, I, I it's a different industry than I grew up in, and um, and as you said, it just changed pretty radically. I think in many ways, like when uh, when I first started VMware, it was in the summer two thousand. It was right before the dot com crash, and that sort of post dot com crash environment. Uh, I think was a lot harsher than the downturn we're in right now. Um, I think that we people are sort of likening this situation to that situation sometimes, saying like, oh, there's going to be all these great companies that get made. Um, I actually think the situation we're in now is much more of a kind of mean reversion than um, some sort of, you know, sea change down to a nadir of, of depression about 
about venture. Um, I haven't seen like a lot of real capitulation yet, right? You haven't seen like firms folding up shop, for instance, right? Or uh, you still have people like me who, who think it's a great year to start a, a venture capital firm, for instance, right? Um, so I think in some ways, like while it is, it can, it can seem daunting, um, it's not really that impossible a time to raise, especially early on. Um, the people that are in a really tough spot are actually the, the folks who are um, kind of midway through their journey, right? If you, if 18 months ago you raised, you know, $100 million without a real product, yeah, you've got a lot of runway, but like it's, it's a pretty tricky problem to solve about how you actually, you know, deliver on that value from here. Um, but getting started, there's like, it's not that huge a drought in seed. I mean, seed valuations are down a little bit. But there's still plenty of money looking for uh, for fundable ideas at the early stages. So I think it's it's in some ways a paradox of great time to raise. Um, a well-funded early stage startup actually probably has a lot more, can much more credibly promise you what you're going to be working on as an engineer than Meta can right now, which is pretty strange. And it hasn't always been true in, in previous downturns. Um, so I don't think it's such a terrible time to take that risk, I guess. Yeah. That's, uh, I think, uh, sound advice for anybody that's listening that's thinking about trying to raise right now. How do you, how do you see startup investing changing in the next five to 10 years? Or how, how do you hope it changes, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. I mean, I think um, there has been, let's see. I think it's, it's fair to say that there has been... Um, a lot of basically momentum, like success accruing to people doing momentum work and doing kind of trend following and doing, um, you know, analytics on hashtags essentially, right? To kind of, you know, whether they're, they're little hashtags or not, um, to try and figure out what to chase and what to invest in, what to pour money into. Um, and that as opposed to kind of the regular old fashioned you know, diligence and, and forming an opinion about what's going to happen and um, being accountable for that opinion has been sort of so successful that it's in some ways the default dominant strategy, even at places that don't think it's their default dominant strategy. What I mean by that is like, if you are a, a vast firm, right? So like the marginal dollar venture is controlled by some huge firm that's like a household name. And if you uh, listen to podcasts by the people that are decision makers and, and have positions of special power at those firms, they'll say all these like super reasonable, well-founded things about uh, the kinds of companies they want to invest in, the kinds of changes they want to make in the world, the kinds of founders they're backing. But several layers down in there, there are you know twenty-something people who are starting their their essentially finance careers as junior employees of a venture firm who have known four to five years of success with this kind of momentum chasing. And that's a really hard habit to unlearn. Um, so I think there's going to be a bunch of reckoning there. And I, you know, I, I don't know exactly like what form that takes. I think it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think, you know, it was while I was relatively, and this is going to sound uh, a, perhaps hypocritical, right? I'm relatively sanguine about your odds of uh, starting a company right now. I think it's a good time to start a, a tech company. Um, I think it's, you know, venture probably needs to shrink secularly as an industry. Like probably fewer people need to do this as a full-time job um, than have been doing it for the last little while. Uh, it looked a little bit easy for artificial reasons to kind of prove to be sustainable. Um, you could kind of execute a few heuristics and look pretty smart for the last five years. 
I don't think that's going to be true going forward. Thanks so much for coming on again. Uh, you know, I love how you've been so supportive of uh, of the show over the years, and it's you've been able product. to come on and share. <laughs> that's great. No, seriously, yeah, you, that's you, important you, part of my information diet. So, yeah, absolutely. But uh, cheers and, and best of luck with Pebble Bib. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, and best of luck with everything that you're doing. <laughs>